Hi, I'm Alex Winter, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? It's going. It's going. Hey, it's a great show today, though. Uh, friggin' amazing show, by the way. Uh, one of those, like, you don't you don't even think that you'll ever get an opportunity to, to speak with somebody uh, with the level of uh, experience and someone who you've been, like, looking at your whole life. Uh, but we got the opportunity to talk to Alex Winter, star of The Lost Boys and, of course, Bill from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bogus Journey, and the up-and-coming Bill and Ted uh, sequel, but also uh, quite an accomplished director, like an amazingly accomplished director, and he's got a new documentary called Showbiz Kids that we both got to see that's going to be on HBO. You know, I'm going to take full credit for getting him on the show, because really, you know, if you think back, like, was it two or three weeks ago, Mm -hmm. I said that my short end was the new Bill and Ted's movie. And I'm sure that that must have been the reason because I said that mm. because I said, oh, this is this is my pet obsession. I'm so excited being a Gen Xer. You know, hey, here comes Bill and Ted three. And that that that's 100 percent. I'm sure. Why, if if why that's how we it. manifest things, then uh, my short end is going to be a million bucks. My short end is going to be a hundred million bucks. <laughs> I, I, I like I, I like where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yes. Uh, yeah. You know. Alex is incredibly diversified. This guy acts, he directs, he produces, he makes documentaries, you know, really critically acclaimed stuff. Uh, this guy kind of does it all. And I think that leads in really well to what we wanted to talk about today for our close focus, which is about, uh, you know, how you spend your time when you've got downtime. Yeah. And, and we all maybe yeah. have a little bit of downtime at the moment for, uh, you know, because of uh, that, which will not be named. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, many of us, uh, yourself and myself included, have uh, more downtime than we are used to having, for sure. Now, I've been—I was already kind of working on a project when this all started. That was a writing thing, so I was able to keep writing from home. That wasn't a, a much of a problem. All of all of the uh, the, the opportunities that I had uh, were slowing. They're slowing down a little bit. Let's just say. And, you know, this is a really good time to maybe try to, you know, keep your tools sharp or pick up a new skill set. I mean, uh, Alex does like 10 different jobs, it seems like, really, really well. Um, oh, my you know, God. Maybe, yeah. maybe, it's, maybe it's time to pick up like, you know, one, you know, one more thing, one more thing that might make you, you know, uh, more attractive to potential, uh, you know, clients or, you or, know, perhaps doing something like learning, learning a new language. I don't know what, 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 what is, oh, well, I what, think, what do you I think, think would be a good, uh, one of the things that I to, think, I think that everybody sh- hopefully is doing right now is some version of basic career hygiene maintenance. Uh, and that would be things like <laughs> brushing, brushing your career. Like, yes. So it's like every cinematographer we've had on here, I think without exception, when we say, is there a website that people can see your work at? They say, oh, my website's completely out of date. Well, you know, turns out you've got a, a couple of six months to sit around. Uh, let's go ahead and update those websites. Let's uh, go ahead and uh, update those reels. Let's go ahead and um, and update things like LinkedIn. I know LinkedIn sounds nerdy. I'm actually on LinkedIn. Met some pretty good people on LinkedIn. It, it, it's nothing to be ashamed of, and there's lots of industry people on LinkedIn. Go 
take an hour and and gussy up your stupid LinkedIn profile. Like you know, it's 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 not going to hurt you to have a good LinkedIn profile. Um, but t- you know, to what you're saying, uh, you know, there are uh, amazing at- websites like Skillshare. Uh, I, I think I've talked about it on here before. I subscribed to Masterclass, and actually, I've been watching a lot of Masterclass. And you feel like you, you've got some takeaways from that? Yeah, actually, I do. You know, I'll tell you, uh, probably my favorite one so far was Neil Gaiman. Um, but I've watched mm. a bunch of them. Uh, we even watched this one guy who talks about like growing plants, uh, like you know how to grow a garden. And I know that it's like you go, well, you know, that's not really a filmmaking skill. But I think that it to me is an interesting way to see how another person uh, attacks a creative pr- challenge. Would, would you say that the people in masterclass truly are masters that they are, they're absolutely no incident out what it is they're talking about? Yeah. I mean, there are some that I would say their advice is somewhat debatable. Uh, You're thinking of Werner Herzog. Uh, Werner. I loved the Werner Herzog masterclass cause I could just listen to Werner Herzog. Actually he calls himself Werner. So maybe I've been saying oh, really? it wrong all okay. the time. He says Werner in the, in the masterclass. Um, God, I, I, I think I think that he has a very interesting take on on how to be a filmmaker, and I think that his advice is helpful to a degree. But also, he's like the only book you need to read about filmmaking is this poetry book about birds. And you know, I kind of like <laughs> he's just effing with you. <laughs> no, I don't think I, I think I think that he you know he says he's never spent more than five days on a screenplay. Uh, I, I'm not saying that he's wrong. I'm saying. I don't think that that's, that, a, that's, that's not a very yeah. repeatable thing to do. And I started watching David Lynch and kind of had a similar reaction, which isn't to say I, I love David Lynch. I love David Lynch's work, but really you can't have a masterclass on how to be David Lynch. Now on the flip side, Ron Howard has a masterclass there and Ron Howard's masterclass is jam packed with outrageously practical advice that every filmmaker would want to have. I, I bet he kills it. I bet he he's, just he's completely great. kills it. I, I watched Aaron Sorkin's. I watched uh, David Mamet's. And uh, I'm blanking on her name. Um, uh, Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood, so, yeah. who uh, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, hers is also very good. There's some really good writers on there. Steve Martin's one on comedy is good. And the ones I think that are the best are the ones that are like focused on what information would somebody coming in need. And, you, you know, you don't. There's a, this is actually a genre now. Do you, do you know this? Do you know this? That like what you're what you're talking about, what you're describing, what you're watching. There's a, it, it now has its own genre. And I'm not making this up. It is called competency porn. People love uh-huh. watching competency porn. So at least wow. people out there who like watching people competent at things. That sound. That's cool. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and, and I think that if you watch these uh, with it in your head, that it's like it's just an extended interview with this person. Like, you know, don't, don't take it as like, here's, you're going to watch Aaron Sorkin and then go off and know how to write the West wing. Cause you won't. <laughs> um, but you're, if you're a creative person or you're someone who aspires to do creative stuff and you hear Aaron Sorkin talk, you know, he's going to just, he, he will inspire you. I think with his individualism. Also, there was a guy who was an FBI, uh, hostage negotiator. Hostage negotiator. Oh was, yes. For some, that guy was great. For, for like two weeks, YouTube kept trying to make make me subscribe and kept showing me that one. I, I like, oh, I you're really going like, to watch this one. It yeah. was really good. Um, I, I want to see it. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a there's a ton of stuff like that that you can find. Um, you know, also there are things like I, I mentioned Skillshare. There are numerous online uh, resources if you wanted to beef up on your uh, abilities. I, I, whenever anyone's like, how do you get into uh, visual effects? And I'm I'm not calling myself a visual effects artist at all but as an editor i have to use 
After Effects video copilot all the time, yeah. video copilot all day long. I I felt so uh, heartened when we talked to the VFX supervisor of Jojo Rabbit, and he started by watching video copilot. Obviously, he's gone a bit further than I have. <laughs> well, you know, um, I think that's a that's a really uh, I think that's really a good idea right now. If you've got the time, why not make yourself uh, better? Why not Why not spend this time to find some way to work on yourself, to improve, to, you know, uh, make yourself, your career more as, as shiny and as polished as you can possibly be, because this will not, you know, this downtime won't last forever. This won't be the last time, you, you know, you or me or anyone else ever works. Yeah. I also think it's probably a good time. Like literally everybody I know in the business has an idea for a screenplay. Maybe pull that out, dust it off, you know, get yourself uh, an install of, you know, fade in or God forbid final draft or, you know, Celtics or whatever, and uh, try to write your screenplay. There are so many, I think that I speak for a lot of people in this business when I say a lot of us have a thing that kind of burns in us, like it's a story that we want to tell or a thing we want to try. And we just keep kicking that can down the road because we get too busy or because money is too scarce or we have to like be out hustling for work all the time. And in a period where like hustling for work is just less of an option than usual, why not go out and kind of build that thing you've been that that sandcastle you've been dreaming of all this time? I I think that's a uh, I think it's a perfect place to leave it. Let's go to the interview now with Alex Winter. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Uh, we are here today with uh, the amazing Alex Winter. Uh, it, I, I have to admit a huge amount of, uh, of excitement on my part, being that I'm a child of the 80s. So I saw him in, in uh, lots of movies, including Lost Boys and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But around that time, and as a Fangoria kid of the 80s, I remember his shift to directing, um, which happened, uh, I remember it mostly from Freaked, but I know that it began a little bit earlier. Oh yeah, um, Idiot Box. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Idiot Box. Oh, there you go. That was Which early. is like, yeah, yeah. If if uh, if you know, if anyone out there wants to, we'll put a link in the show notes. But you, there's someone who seems to have pirated them onto YouTube in glorious 240p sort of resolution. You might <laughs> do, and uh, but still, the comedy holds up regardless of resolution. So much fun. Well, anyway. I, I, Alex, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Good to be here. We wanted to, honestly, we wanted to start by talking about uh, your new documentary, which uh, you made, which is being released by HBO. I don't know if you made it for HBO, uh, called Showbiz Kids. Uh, that's uh, a a deep dive into what it's like to be a child actor, and you know, I'm uh, assuming that your background as a child actor uh, informed it. But can you tell me about the genesis of this uh, this project? Yeah, I. Uh wanted to make this film for quite some time uh the first documentary i I made was called downloaded about uh, the rise and fall of napster and primarily sean fanning's story uh and his relationship with sean parker and the 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 glaring spotlight they found themselves under when they unleashed this little application onto the world in the late 90s and uh, this was the film I wanted to make directly after that, and it, it was uh, it was about ten years ago, maybe a little less, somewhere in there, and and it was, uh, I think, uh, not quite the right time for this story. Uh, I had the same concept I I do now, which was uh, um, to uh, an intimate, relatively quiet examination of this experience from only from the perspective of those who had experienced it. So not uh, kind of a a verite following of a child actor. 
and not a uh, kind of a biographical rise and fall story, but a, a more of a uh, of a uh, an experience of of um, of going in one end of that world out the other, but across all of Hollywood um, in terms of its history. So time caught up with us. Um, you know, ultimately, I made more docs, so I knew what I was doing better, which I think helped probably. <laughs> yeah. um, and. Uh, <laughs> And then uh, I think that, you know, the, the sort of age of Instagram and the Me Too movement, there were a bunch of things that just suddenly made these types of conversations more understandable to the average viewer, which means they were more understandable to the average buyer, basically. Your your background having been a child actor, but also like, you know, going way back to, you know, talking to actors from the silent era or one actor from the silent era. One of my takeaways seems to be that uh, child actors have to be treated better today than than probably ever before. Like they, you know, they seem better uh, adjusted as human beings, and they seem to be. There seems to be an allowance for letting them have their childhood. But even going back twenty years, that was twenty years ago, that was less the case. Are you, am I uh, seeing this correctly, or is that a misunderstanding? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think that you know. I mean, do you mean in relationship to me, or just in general? In general, I mean, like, uh, you know, Cameron Boyce, who, you know, uh, very tragically passed away uh, like a year ago. But like, you know, I, I sort of felt like hearing his experience of being a child actor versus like Evan Rachel Wood versus versus Henry Thomas. You know? The the thing is, is, is what I discovered making it was that in many ways, things have changed many, many ways uh, that are obvious. Uh, child labor laws changed radically. Yeah. I mean, our, my oldest subject is uh, Diana Sarah Carey passed away last year at 102. Wow. She started, started acting in, in 1920 at the age of two years old. So uh, she uh, experienced a world in which there were very few child labor laws. There certainly was no Coogan law to protect your money. There was no child emancipation. You know, it was kind of like working in the, you know, in, in a Dickensian environment to a degree. There's literally a shot of her being thrown like 10 feet and landing on the ground. And I was like, did they really do that to a little kid? Yeah, I mean, that's where Buster Keaton got his name. Buster Keaton got his name because his dad, he, they did vaudeville and his dad would pick him up. Um, actually had, he had like a suitcase handle sewn into Buster's jacket and they would pick him up like a suitcase and throw him into the audience. Oh, wow. And he handled it so well, they started calling him, they would say, there goes a buster, uh, meaning he bruised himself or whatever. But so, yes, yeah, so that came out of vaudeville. This notion of, of throwing children for entertainment was a vaudeville conceit that-, that Oh, it's with... entertaining. It just is a little <laughs> it, cringy, you know? You, you, can't, you can't deny it's, it's you know, it's, it is, uh, <laughs> you feel bad for the subjects, but it is um, yeah, <laughs> undeniable entertainment. Uh, and then, of course, all the way up to present with, with someone like Cameron, who- uh, came up um, under the, you know, the, the scrutiny of social media and the, the kind of forever record of every moment of your life. Um, so while the labor laws were better and the, you know, the supervision on set was better, uh, the protection of your finances were better, I would say it's just as challenging in other ways, if not more so, because there's no, you have no privacy at all. And uh, any indiscretions, any mistakes you make, uh, will, uh, you know, be recorded for all time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was wondering also while watching it, uh, like, I feel like you get an enormous amount of sincerity out of, uh, out of all the interview subjects that you have, including like Todd Bridges and Henry Thomas and, and Evan Rachel Wood telling really uncomfortable stories. Do you feel like you were, uh, uniquely positioned to get these stories out of people because, 
you know, they know that you, you shared some version of the childhood that they lived through? Of course. Yes. I, I, I had a, an established trust with, with the subject because they, they, they knew my story and, mm. uh, or I told them my story, uh, and, mm. uh, I shared their experiences and they knew I had their back. Um, and, uh, so there was a level of identification that made it much easier. Um, you know, Mara told me that she flat out wouldn't have done it at all had it not been, um, a child actor directing oh, wow. it. So, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's a vulnerable place to put yourself. And, and my whole pitch to my subjects was, you know, I think the same as my pitch to the network, which was, was, this was an intimate examination. It was not a gotcha movie or it didn't want to be a salacious, um, kind of just speak, you know, feed the lowest common denominator. Um, but I really wanted to, to, um, sort of respectfully have these people share their experiences. So, um, I couldn't have done that if I hadn't been through it, but I also couldn't have done it if I hadn't resolved a lot, um, mm. myself. And so, you know, the time was right for the movie. The time was right for me and for the subjects that were willing to talk, the time was obviously right for them and it wasn't right for everybody. And I respected that too. If someone said they, they didn't want to do it, I was fine. Like I get it. I mean, it's not, not a place that, that some of those people want to revisit and not because it was so horrible. It's just, it, they've moved on in their lives. They don't really want to dig up their childhood uh, in front of a camera. Did you ever see, uh, there's a documentary that came out about 10 years ago called Hollywood Complex. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I've actually seen it, but I know the Oakwoods very well. I actually stayed there once and I, I'm very familiar with that, with that. Yeah. Cause you, I mean, you didn't do the same thing that they did cause they kind of were, were dealing exclusively with kids who were staying at the Oakwoods. So it was a documentary about like that season of kids trying to become the next, you know, Disney kid or whatever. And, and all the people who are kind of there to take their money, but you do follow one family around um, from my hometown, Orlando, Florida, um, as, as they kind of went through it, but they seemed like really well adjusted about the way that they were approaching it. Uh, How many uh, did, did you consider following more kids or uh, you know, like what brought you specifically to that family? I looked at a lot of kids. Um, I talked to a lot of moms and dads and I uh, shot more kids than those two, uh, not many, but some. Uh, and everyone was great, honestly. I mean, but I wasn't looking for train wrecks. I'm not sure how easy it would have been to find train wrecks on their surface, but I mean, I was looking for people that I felt had, you know, parents that that really that felt like my perspective on what showbiz parents are. I worked. I shoot a lot of. I've over the years, I've shot a lot of kids TV. I had my own production company for years in the UK and the U S and shot, you know, hundreds of TV commercials. Many of those were for like Hasbro or whatever. Um, and I've shot for Nick and I've shot for Disney and cartoon network. And I've worked with a lot of children and I've worked with a lot of kids, parents. And it was a, an interest in really being able to show two conflicting poles of experience. And that was one kid who was completely green, very passionate, good parents, uh, best will in the world, uh, going to give it a go. And the others were, I was looking for a kid that had started, you know, young as well, but had already done some big work, uh, was navigating an actual career at that age. You know, again, good parents probably left some town to go to wherever. And in, in my case, Demi was in New York, Demi, mostly yeah. doing, doing Broadway. Yeah, yeah. And then moving into TV and film and, and Mark was from Florida, as you said, and, and they had, he and his mom had, 
come to Hollywood for pilot season. So I really wanted that distinction. I just wanted to be able to capture two, two opposing experiences. Mm -hmm. I, I think you succeeded very well with that. And as you're oh, watching it and you go through, uh, you really get to see sort of uh, the different personalities that, that, that come through uh, between these, uh, these kids and their relationship with their parents and trying to navigate, uh, you know, early stardom, early success. Um, one thing that I, that I kept thinking because we are a cinematography podcast was, uh, and I, and obviously you're a director, not a cinematographer primarily, but like what do cinematographers need to know about working with kids? I had a group of DPs on this. Um, they were all really good with kids. Um, and, uh, Angel Decker, who was the, I mean, I usually credit on my docs, I'll credit the key DP, uh, as the director of photography, because they're literally the director of photography. They're literally setting the look and, you know, working with, with me and, and designing a, a kind of a visual language for the movie. And then that gets sent to other DPs as we're doing, continuing to do the work. They, they have their own style and I hire them because they have their own style, but it sort of feeds through the initial look. So uh, Angel Decca, I've worked with for years. Angel shot uh, a kid's movie with me for Cartoon Network, a Ben 10, big sci-fi sci visual effects movie that we did together years okay. ago. And um, I knew he was great with kids. Uh, he's got kids, uh, but we've done a lot together. He worked on a lot of set, my Zappa doc and he did download it with me and you know, we traipsed around the world together. You know, having certain sensitivity, not having an abrasive personality, um, being, being very respectful of the, of the subjects. It's uh, sort of having a guiding hand in that way. It's really important because on a documentary, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm like, I'm right in, the, in, in their face and the subject's face when we're shooting interviews but the dp is right there too and um and then we're shooting verite footage There's usually i'm shooting a lot more verite than i end up using and they really the the families or the subjects in general come to have a very intimate relationship with the dp because they're right in their face and, and often in their home environment or in very personal you yeah. know uh, environments so i do look for people who have really good you know very respectful and and good bedside manners basically um so that they can just kind of you know they can be welcome into someone's not just someone who can disappear but who can actually be welcome oh that's good to hear kind of on a related note like when you were first starting out as a child actor like what was how how did the film sets uh, hit you i i the one thing i was wishing for the whole documentary and i knew it wasn't going to happen was i wanted to hear your story a little bit you know, I wanted to hear your your story of being a kid actor and kind of being in circumstances like this. But like, what was it like for you when you were first dealing with those people, with cinematographers, directors, et cetera? I mean, as a director, period, or on the documentaries? No, for you, like when you were a child actor, when you when you when you were starting out. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. That's very interesting. Um, you know, I I wanted to direct as well as act since I was really little so mm -hmm. i was i was very much soaking it up and i was a real cinephile uh when i was very very young um i collected books on film when i was really little and uh would read up on you know who shot the films that i loved um and those would include charlie chaplin movies i was really into hitchcock oh, wow. and, Ch and chaplin um i was into a lot of old hollywood when i was when i was quite young i think because i was a show i was a song and dance kid and a lot of that stuff was was inspiring to me. Um, so I read a lot about cameras. I read a lot about lighting. I, I bought, I mean, I had three or four, eight mil and super eight cameras by the time oh, I was wow. eight, eight years old. I was about to ask what age we're talking about. That's crazy young to be doing that. I was really young. I had, <laughs> I had a little, my, my parents were both in the arts. They, they were modern dancers and they, and my, 
mother taught dance at a university and she would taught dance at WashU in St. Louis. And my dad ran his own dance company. So I was around people who kind of were industrious in the business. And it rubbed off on me to the extent that in a goofy childlike way, me and my friends would put on shows. We started making movies with elaborate costumes and lighting. And I was trying out special effects. I remember when I was like 10, I saw Norman McLaren's na uh, Neighbors, you know, the one where they fly around. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a short film and they, they fly all around the backyard by jumping up, doing a click, jumping up, like jumping up. Doing a click. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started playing with like stop motion, uh, 10, 11 years old on a on a Brownie 8 mil camera. Wow. Um, and I had like my own rewinds in my little basement clubhouse. And I had a projector and I would get, uh, you know, in those days you would get Super 8 and 8 mil uh, reels from your photos. Uh, store of like scenes so I had like I had the shower scene from Psycho in sound which was like that was like the creme de la creme of my collection because it was in sound um, <laughs> I had like you know excerpts from Gunga Din I remember I had I had like all these movies you know from Alan Garfield gangster pictures thing. I mean that was the kind of stuff that was available it wasn't like I was that much of an aficionado um, and then I would edit those. I would like chop them up um, and like resplice them. And and so I was doing that all through like middle school. And so by the time I, I started working with, with real DPs, I was just like a sponge. Um, I remember I was an actor when I was in high school on a TV commercial and the camera went down and we were just all sitting there for like hours. And uh, so I just grilled the DP. It was really, I'm sure he hated <laughs> me, but um but I was really curious, like, you know, how, you know, what they were using and how it worked and how they were lighting. And, um, and then the, I think the first pivotal experience for me working with a DP young was uh, when I did Lost Boys, because, of course, Michael Chapman shot it. And like, you know, I did Lost Boys during my sophomore year at NYU. I went to film school at NYU. I didn't go to I didn't study acting. I studied film. So to me, Michael Chapman was was God, you know, far more than anyone else on that set. I made a beeline for Chapman who had shot. Raging Bull. Raging Bull. And, yeah. 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 Not exactly a lightweight. Yeah. Yeah. Had worked on Jaws and, and, <laughs> uh, and I knew his whole career and I followed him around like a lap dog on that, on that shoot. Cause I didn't, you know, one of the great things about that was it was a really big movie and I didn't have a whole hell of a lot to do in it. So I had a lot of free time. Um, and so I, you know, I got a lot out of watching Chapman work and the way he lit, I learned a lot from, he used, uh, I mean, he was a, he used practical, I mean, natural light a lot, but he would also, he lit really dark, like really dark. And uh, it was extraordinary because you would, the detail in that film when you watch it, whatever you think of the movie is, is, is exquisite. I love the movie and I will not hear anyone say otherwise. Yeah. And I remember Bo Welch, who was, you know, a brilliant production designer, you know, he built this incredible cave set uh, that was our home. I mean, incredible. Yeah. It's, it's it, the idea conceptually was that you know there had been an earthquake and the grand ballroom of the hotel had kind of sunk and i don't know if that's even mentioned in the film i don't think it is but that I was the kind of <laughs> yeah that was the backstory for why they built it the way they did so like this idea was there were like ballroom chairs hanging from the ceiling and off of vines and then i watched chapman light it with like a bunch of using park hands just like literally dug into the floor of the set like all around the perimeter of the set like they're visit if you look hard enough you can almost because they're just right there and then he, he had a dimmer and he just cranked that sucker all the way to the bottom. And I remember Bo like going, I can't see my set. Like, <laughs> like I spent all this money building this set and I can't see it. And of course you could, you know, cause film had such great latitude, but, uh, but he lit really dark and, um, but, but with intention. So I learned a lot watching Chapman and then I, you know, 
I started to work with other DPs and, and learned a lot from, from watching them. But that was kind of my foray into working with a mass, an actual master. Uh, a couple of years after that as an actor, the next time I had that kind of experience was I, I made a, a very obscure film for Canon Films called Haunted Summer um, when I was like 20 years old, which I shot which is just uh, Philip Anglum, Laura Dern, Eric Stoltz, Alice Krieg, and myself. Those are the, really the only actors in it. It's about Lord Byron on a lake in, in, in the 1800s. We're coming up with Frankenstein. And, and Yvonne Passer directed it, the Czech director, and Papino Rattuno shot it, who shot all of Fellini's movies, and, mm-hmm. uh, and some of Gilliam's, but really you know, he's well known for, for shooting Fellini. And, and that, was, that was an unbelievable experience. And he taught me a lot about shooting um, still photography. He, he used Leicas and he would shoot stills while he was setting up the camera for, um, for the scenes. And I learned an enormous amount. Rotuno, I actually spent more time talking to because I had more confidence by then. With Chapman, I was, I was, it was my first big movie. I was kind of scared shitless. And I just kind of quietly <laughs> followed him around. Um, with Rotuno, he was just a very paternal guy. And I, I asked him a lot of questions. So, I mean, it sounds like by the, you know, compared to the people, like, I feel like in uh, Showbiz Kids, a lot of the people who were talking to, obviously, they're starting uh, very young, like Henry Thomas, when he was, you know, like nine years old or whatever, for on his first film. And a lot of them are sort of like babe in the woods walking into a situation that they don't really have any way to understand yet. But by the time you showed up on a film set, you actually knew what everyone was doing even like you, you understood and were excited about the whole process, not just, you know, uh, we all work with actors who uh, only focus on the acting and then we work on people, work with people who, uh, who are familiar with the whole process and are, are involved. You sound like that kind of person, even at the very, very beginning of your career. Am I, is that correct? Well, of my film career, yes, but, but I started acting professionally at nine. And uh, so, yes, I knew what a set was. Probably, I was a little bit more pre- precocious than your average kid as a little <laughs> kid. Uh, my mom, I was, a- I was able to take the college film course when I was, I think I was 11 or 12. And obviously oh, wow. I, wasn't taking, I wasn't taking it for credit. I was just showing up, but I made a little film and I learned a lot from, from the professor and, and they were very nice to me. I wasn't, you know, I was a little kid in a grown up class, but I learned a lot, but I didn't really, I was still pretty green and I, I didn't really, it wasn't until after film school when I walked back onto sets um, that I felt like, oh, I actually really know what's going on. I mean, I had my own cameras, like real cameras mm. by then. I was doing real stuff and shooting music videos and uh, it was a different world. Uh, when I was little, I, I was pretty wide eyed. <laughs> I didn't, really know what the hell, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I just, I just knew I liked, I thought movie sets were cool and I had lots of pictures of them at home. You know? That's awesome. So let's kind of uh, pivot a little bit to, to talking about uh, your, your, your beginnings as, as a director. You said that when you started out, you wanted to act and direct. Were they always kind of uh, parallel interests or did, or was directing more the, the, the direction you were headed at that time? It was, it was all of the above. Cause I wasn't, I was a little kid. So I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I knew that I liked performing a lot. When you're that young, even if you're really, really intent on doing it, you still don't, you're not, you don't have agency. You don't really know what you're doing. So yeah. you know, if you have parents who are cool, they'll be like, well, let's figure out how to help you do this thing that you love while still keeping you protected. But you don't, like, I remember having this fuzzy idea of what film school was, even when I was doing the Broadway shows and I'd made films and stuff and I was aiming myself towards film school and thinking, 
well, I don't know. Do I want to go for editorial? Do I want to go for screenwriting? Do I want to go for cinematography? Do I want to go for, I didn't really, I wasn't like, I'm going to go be Hitchcock, you know, or yeah. Steven, Steven Spielberg. I wasn't that clear. I liked doing yeah. so many different things involved with making films that I wasn't really that sure what I was going to do. So no, it, it, while I was, I was, you know, decided enough to have a, you know, to have a craft that I knew I wanted to pursue, uh, sort of like my elder son's in art school, similar kind of thing. Like he didn't know exactly what he wanted to do, but he knew he wanted to go to art school. Uh, I kind of threw myself at it. And that's why when I came out, I was, I was making films and uh, directing commercials and music videos but I still wanted to act you know I was still acting and I, so I kind of kept on doing a little bit of everything for a while until that came untenable <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say well well how does um okay so you so you're uh, you're acting you're doing you know big movies like the the Bill and Ted's franchise and then uh, all of a sudden uh, directing uh, creating this show for MTV comes along which kind of kicks open a new television door it seems like for you can you talk a little bit about how how it was like for you as like uh, here it is a co-star of this uh, giant movie franchise and then going into to meet people and saying yeah but i i want to i want to make this thing for tv or i want to direct i want to do i want to do that at that point i was directing with a partner on tom stern who who i made freak with and we were directing a lot already uh we were at propaganda films and we were making Oh, sure. TV, TV commercials, and we were making music videos, and uh, we were up to all kinds of stuff. So we weren't really totally green, but uh, we had big plans. Like, we wanted to make a movie, and we had, at that time, we had an anthology comedy that we wrote that Sam Raimi, um, he was a fan of our student film, actually, a film we made called Squeal of Death, which we shot at, at NYU, which is up on the internet, and it's, uh, you know, we shot it on 16 on a wind-up Bolex, and it's, you know, nice. I play like 40 different characters in it, and it's pretty bonkers. But uh, he was trying to help us make a feature, and um, we, couldn't, we couldn't get a feature off the ground. We couldn't get that movie off the ground. I think Kentucky Fried Movie had come out and flopped, and at that precise moment in time, nobody wanted to make an anthology yeah. comedy. So we basically broke apart the anthology comedy feature, and MTV, after Bill and Ted 1 did well, came to me and said, do you want to guest VJ the afternoon slot as Bill? Um, <laughs> and I said, I'd really rather put, you know, 12 inch knitting needles in my eyes, but a week, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a yeah. good description. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I said, you know, look, I happen to have this, this show that, my partner and I wrote. We had a bunch of pretty good music videos under our belt by then. We'd done videos for the Chili Peppers and Ice Cube, and we'd done some pretty big videos. So we had done stuff. So they were like, uh, sure, here's literally no money and all the creative control you want. We were like, young. <laughs> we were like, that's awesome. We don't need money. We just need creative control. So, um, so we went and did that until we realized that you can't actually eat without money. And that then we had to stop doing that show. But it was really fun. And we and we really did have complete control. We went completely bonkers. And we shot that show on a combination of Bolex and, and video. So it would have been, what would it have been? It would have been three quarter, maybe. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah maybe the beginning of beta. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we had, a, we had a really good time, but when we, we made a movie called Freaked after that, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, that was really the Idiot Box movie in a way. It was, it was all the right, it was the writers, uh, me, Tom Stern and Tim Burns uh, from the Idiot Box, the directors, me and Tom, most of the cast from the Idiot Box is in it. Um, so that was basically our Idiot Box movie and we made that. That was the first time that either of us had shot 35 mil. We'd never 
we'd only been shooting um, 16 and uh, and video up till then. Can you tell me, because we've had a lot of music video director, or DPs rather, on the show, including people like Larry Fong, who shot Losing My Religion, and uh, we've had people who, who've shot more recent stuff. But when you're talking about propaganda, like to me, propaganda was like a legendary thing in the in the mostly 80s, early 90s. Um, what was the environment of that like? Like, again, it's, it's kind of mythic to me because so many amazing people came out of that particular organization. Uh, it really was, it was a great place to be. It was, uh, it was a real learning ground for us. Um, obviously we, uh, you know, we had come up, um, from film school, you know, very, very run and gun, very independent. You know, it was the first kind of big professional job we had, frankly. Um, and we were working in the same playground as the kind of these the big dogs at that time, which was Fincher and Michael yeah. Bay and uh, Dom Senna. I mean, there were huge directors there doing inc- absolutely incredible work. And I remember we were like the punk, we were the punk rockers, right? Like we shot, we had so little money for Idiot Box that we shot a lot of idiot box at propaganda at night because we couldn't afford sets and we really <laughs> didn't didn't really live anywhere big enough to shoot in so uh that's where we that's where we shot it and and i remember when we got the deal for freaked i remember being in the cafeteria at propaganda and i remember michael bay who was like you know wildly successful by then i remember him coming up to us and just like how did you two punks get a movie? Like, he was so pissed. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Sounds incredulous. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was just. He was just pissed straight up. Um, so yeah, they were really fun days. We learned an enormous. We really learned an enormous amount. Um, but I think for out of spite, I shot the rock accountant scene like in Michael Bay's office, like late at two in the morning, just to mess with him. But. <laughs> How do you go about, uh, you know, speaking of the early days, how do you go about taking a, a very punk rock aesthetic that you had and kind of you're not commercializing it. You're not you're not selling it out. But how do you how do you make clients go along with it? I feel like it's it's always a, a challenge when you have an edgy idea and a client clients tend to be they can be a, a little gun shy of going like full bore with something that's super punk rock like that. Well, what it was, was a different it was a different era. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was the tail end of the punk era uh, on the one hand. And uh, we were incredibly young. We didn't cost anything. MTV (laughs) had never really done live action before. So they really didn't know what they were doing. They just wanted to do what those crazy kids were watching. And so they were willing to take a flyer. I don't think there's any, you know, certainly as a, as a grown up, I, I would never, I would never be able to do that today. And beyond that, I think it would be very hard to do that today in any kind of environment that's corporate like that. That's what the internet's for. You know, yeah. I think if we, if we were, if we were coming up now um, at that age, we would absolutely have just put everything online. That's for sure what we would have done. It was, it was pretty amazing and groundbreaking. I, I can't remember seeing another sort of punk aesthetic type of show that was also like, making fun of the people who were paying them that that non amount of money too like i seem to remember like <laughs> like a at the time when like mtv sports was like a really really big show that you there was like a segment that you guys had done that completely mocked it it was like yep. you were completely throwing them under the bus and that was wonderful especially for everyone who was into sort of like you know that that punk ideal at, you know uh, coming up at that time which 
I know that I was. So that 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 that, that oh, cool. was really that was really interesting to me. Uh, was there any sort of uh, was there any sort of criticism that you got flack for anything that you did? Did people come back and go like, well, maybe for the next episode, uh, tone down the criticism of uh, of us? So. Well, I mean, it was it was extremely violent what we did, I know. Um, <laughs> and uh, and we. <laughs> We just kept going until they stopped us. But the thing was, and people, it, it did incredibly well. And uh, the only reason that that freaked happened at all was because MTV came back to us and said, we want to do another one and another season. And Tom and I were like, we, we literally couldn't afford it. Like they, we were losing money making it. And we were like dirt poor and barely making our rent and not eating very much in the way of food. So um, we, we honestly just couldn't afford to do another one. And so we, we sort of put together what was going to be not season two, but sort of ideas that we had. Um, and we took one of the, one of the sort of sketch ideas that we had and we stretched it out and, and turned it into a movie. Um, and that eventually, not right away, sort of went through permutations, but eventually became free. Now, can you talk about like acting and directing in, in, in the same, uh, film? I mean, obviously you have a co-director that you're working with. So you've got a, a set of eyes, but how does, how do you, how are you able to kind of monitor your own performance and kind of the whole movie if you're also acting in it? It's, well, there's no way I could have done it without Tom. Um, I mean, Tom was, was, was instrumental in that being able to be, to be achieved. Uh, I was not only co-directing, but I was in an enormous amount of prosthetic makeup that required hours and hours and hours every yeah. morning and, and another chunk of hours at night to get in and out of there's just there's no way it would have happened frankly you know i learned an enormous amount it was kind of our training ground it was it was it was the big leagues for us uh we were working with really high-end people um across the board uh jamie thompson was our dp shot the movie on fuji film i love that you remember what stock you shot your your first movie on that's so awesome Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. And a lot of thought went in, went into that. Yeah. It was a, a very intense, a very intense process for us. Um, and, and a very, 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 very challenging process. It was, it was a, a big movie in the scheme of things. It was like $12 million, uh, which, you know, it was like, I guess like 25 today. And we never worked in anything like that kind of money before. Um, and it was big sets. Catherine Hardwick was our production designer. She wasn't directing wow. movies yet. And she, you know, is a genius and was, you know, one, honestly, one of the greatest production designers in Hollywood. Um, and, you know, so was moved on to directing really great movies. But, uh, we, you know, we had this incredible team of people around us and we, we really just kind of shut up and listened. Um, yeah. And that, that was very beneficial to us. And we came out of that and we really, you know, after that knew what we were, we were doing much more so than when we had gone into it. I, th I think we should get into some of your other uh, documentary work because, uh, you know, I'd say what, uh, probably the uh, early 2010s, uh, yeah, earlier part yeah. of this decade, mm -hmm. you started getting yeah. into doing uh, documentary work and yes. uh, you've done a lot since then and some really, some really interesting <clears throat> things. How are you received as, you know, uh, actor and director of, uh, you know, all, a very, very diverse group of projects now getting into more serious documentary uh, filmmaking? Well, I mean, I'd made, uh, I'd done a lot of work by the time I started doing documentaries and I um, uh, had made 
serious films. You know, the, the film I made after Tom and I did Freak was an independent film I wrote and directed called Fever with Henry Thomas, um, which was uh, Joe DeSalvo shot also. Well, in those days, everything was on film, but we, that was all, a lot of sets were built for that. It was a lot of in-camera effects. I was really kind of going back to films I loved of, of Murnau and Dreyer. So we were doing kind of in-camera effects and scrim set effects and pulling the walls stuff. off sets. And we shot like scenes with like super long lenses with the wall of the set pulled off back like 200 feet back from the set. We were just really having fun. So badass. Yeah. yeah, it was really, really fun. Um, and uh, a lot of stuff with, with weird lenses for you know specific effects. But, you know, I, I'd been writing serious stuff for a while. Um, I'd been writing some politically oriented stuff for a while. And Downloaded came about because I, I had sold, I had got Sean Fanning's life rights uh, as Napster was ending and had sold them with Sean as my partner to MTV Films. And I was going to direct a narrative about the Napster story at MTV Films Paramount and geez, I don't know, 2003, maybe. And oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, it, we couldn't get, the MTV films basically cratered and there was no more MTV films. So we went to turn around and we spent a long time trying to get that off the ground. And it was really hard to do because it was, a you know, people, anyone over the age of 25 didn't know what an MP3 was and didn't know how to plug their computer into the internet. Hey, and we're, and we're back to those times now. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and they looked at us and like, you know, they looked at Sean like, aren't you like the evil pirate kid that destroyed the record industry? And I was like, okay, this is never going to happen. So, um, yeah, we ba I basically had to kind of bide the time of, of the world catching up to, to the technology. Um, but by the time I, it did, I had done so much work on the script that I'd met everybody. Um, it, it felt like it would make a better doc. And Sean was such a compelling character. Sean Parker was so compelling. I pitched it as a doc and, uh, and I sold it immediately. It's a thing I'd had, I'd gone through hell trying to make as a narrative. I sold and I was up and running and shooting. Angel, who did Showbiz Kids, was on that with me and we were shooting Banning in Silicon Valley like a week after I pitched it. Um, oh, wow. wow. And that was, yeah, I'd been shooting some digitally by then, uh, commercials. Um, I had a production company, so we had moved kind of into digital um, pretty early uh, with the red and some of the other early, earlier. Uh, digital cameras that worked well. I was actually kind of an embracer of digital. There were a lot of things about it that I really liked. I, it wasn't right for everything. And obviously the the chips didn't have a, a lot of latitude back then, but um, uh, with the docs, it was, they've been digital from the get-go. And by honestly, uh, you know, we were on Canons and the Canons by 2010, when we were doing downloaded, they looked awesome. And it was, you know, made life much easier. You could, I, I really like shooting intimately with my subjects. I don't like showing up with a big crew. I don't like a lot of lights. I don't like a lot of gear. I find that you get much worse interviews if you have lots of stuff. Mm -hmm. So digital is a boom for docs in that way. You, you have barely any footprint at all. You can shoot someone in their office and like not even have to move their papers around. Now, when, when you're doing a documentary, I, I'm just really interested in this, obviously, because we, we're doing this right now. Uh, how do you approach the interviews that you do? Like what kind of what kind of preparation do you do? Uh, what, what kind of questions do you walk in uh, with? Or are, are, are you more trying to get to the real conversation and, and pull stuff out later? You know, bo both approaches are, you know, kind of time honored. I'm just curious what yours is. It depends on the subject that you're talking to and it depends on the subject matter of the, of the project. It really does. Um, you know, the, I could be talking to a, a 
someone who is up for a criminal charge. I could be talking to, you know, someone who's recounting, like on showbiz, someone who's recounting a very intimate story. Um, I generally, because I come from narrative, I generally, I do a lot of writing on my docs, a, a lot. Um, that is uh, a lot of doc filmmakers either come from editing or from journalism. And uh, while I've done a lot of editing, uh, I don't come from editing and I don't come from journalism. I come from, from writing screenplays. And uh, so I do a lot of writing all through the process. And I have a structure that it changes a lot, um, of course, because it's a documentary. But um, there's a kind of a, a skeleton that, that undergirds the whole thing that um, that I'm building on. And uh, so when I'm doing an interview, I usually have a pretty good idea of what I'm looking for. Um, and so I'll have questions embedded in there that are the ones that I know I need answers to. And then I have questions that are really just to let them talk and, and get comfortable. Um, and I'm not so controlling or frankly so good that I really know which of those answers I'm going to use. Uh, mm -hmm. Oftentimes the really just let them ramble stuff is where you get the gold. So, um, but I don't, I'm not so prescribed that I'm just, you know, give me the facts and go home. Uh, I really want people to go on a journey and to take themselves somewhere. Um, and, and out of that ephemera, often some of your best stuff comes. You know, I'm, I'm very interested to hear about the Zappa documentary because uh, you probably know a guy who I knew through L.A. theater named Jay Warner, who I guess worked for for Zappa's people. Yeah, Jay I, worked on our movie for years. I mean, yeah, years yeah. out of my uh, office. So I'm, I'm, I'm just fascinated to know, like, because to me, Zappa's music is so uh, so one of a kind. What uh, are you able to talk at all about the Zappa documentary or? Uh, yeah, I am. I mean, the 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 unfortunate thing is the film was completely done and headed to south by southwest for his world premiere and then on a massive yeah. global festival run uh the week that covid shut everything down so it, it just crippled us but we we picked back up recently and we've actually i can't talk about the details but we we are um we we're in a really good place and i'll be announcing our distribution plans very soon and they're, it's really great so i'm very happy about that but it was a you know project i've been working on for well over five years um my producing partner glenn zipper and i pitched gail zappa this thing in 2015 and i started filming gail in 2015 and they gave me access to the vault uh and the vault oh, wow. is floor to ceiling uh rows and rows and rows of shelving with all of this material that zappa himself had archived over the, year, the course of his life and it was um a vast collection of everything from eight millimeter home movies he shot of and he was like he was a filmmaker so at 12 years old he was shooting his mom and dad and editing that film and then adding sound to that film um and we have all that so uh it went all the way from that all the way through um his life and so it was you know 8 mil 16 mil 35 mil you know mag audio uh that was deteriorating one inch video two inch video d1 beta beta sp digibeta i mean it was every conceivable wow. format and it was not going to be alive much longer some of it um so we did a kickstarter campaign we raised a ton of money thankfully and we spent two full years preserving all of that media and we uh it was a great lesson in our archival for me because i uh and i didn't want to just give the media over to like one big company because uh, it was it was kind of an unsafe thing to do. It was it was it's his whole life's work. I had to be very careful with it. So we found proprietary mom and pop shops for each format, uh, largely people who had built their own machines. Like a lot of them were like sprocketless 
machines for uh, for scanning and, and the like. Uh, you know, these are people who like usually get a piece of film, they get to run it through once, it dies, that's it. They've got one scan, the movie's now finished, right? Whether it's a D.W. Yeah. Griffith film or whatever. And in our case, that happened to us a couple times where we got one shot, it could buy, that film was dust, but we had the media. Um, and we set about finding someone. We found someone who was just a one-inch expert, someone who was just a two-inch video expert, different people, different facilities. And it was crazy. Um, it, was, it was just a laborious exercise, but it was very gratifying. So uh, the film is mostly archival, unsurprisingly, and um, I'm really, really happy with it. It'll be, it'll be out later this year, it looks like. I mean, what is it like going, I mean, like once you have all that stuff, I always think about, you know, like the Orson Welles movie, The Other Side of the Wind, when they finally got all that footage and they have to like basically piece it all back together. Like how much, I, I don't even know what the question is, but it's like, what is it like confronting that amount of material and how do you go about like even cataloging it? And once you have it all scanned in an archival format, how do you even, how do you start piecing together your story as, as a filmmaker? Uh, because again, I'd been doing an enormous amount of writing. I had been writing and writing and writing and mm -hmm. writing and writing. And I'd been researching Zappa's life and just writing. I had basically, I could have written a, a dramatic biopic of his life. I had act one, I had the act one crisis. I had the midpoint of act two, I had the end of act two. Um, I wrote it like a drama. Uh, and then obviously it changed. Um, but also, uh, it's a documentary and a documentary is, is very largely driven by the skill of your editor. And Mike Nichols, who cut that movie is really super talented. And mm. he worked very, very hard at navigating a structure with me and bringing the, his own, completely his own flavor to, uh, to a manner of telling the story in a way that would be coherent, but still within the spirit of Frank's life and his work. Um, so it was, you know, it's a, it's a partnership. Every doc is a partnership with, with many people. But in the case of Zappa, because of how long it went on, it was very particularly a, a me and, and Mike. And, and Mike Nichols did just an incredible job. That's great to hear. Um, before we go, what can you tell us about the new Bill and Ted? I mean, I can tell you what's already out there, which is, which is unsurprising, which is that we, we had a, a, a summer date. It's moved a few times, but we have been intent on getting the film out as soon as we possibly can to fans, but without it being unsafe or requiring people to put their lives at risk, which is not mm. in the spirit of be excellent to each other. So <laughs> um, <laughs> be excellent to each other and get a deadly pandemic virus. You know, it's, it's the pandemic is, is the for, at the forefront of our minds as I, it is everyone. So I'm worried about my family and worried about yeah. my elder relatives. There's like serious ongoing concerns. My for kid's sure. gonna go back to school. I don't, don't know. So. Uh, the movie is is within the same framework as that, which is we love the movie. We're unbelievably happy with it. We don't want to have to wait too long before people see it. So how do we do that safely? And that's what we're working on right now. And, and we should have answers for everyone imminently. So just one one other question about that, which is after spending most of your career at this point, primarily as a director, what was it like stepping completely out of the director's chair and, and inhabiting this character that you created so memorably, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, it was really, really fun. Uh, it, Keanu is a super close friend of mine. The writers are super close friends of mine. The producer, they were makeup effects people. Bill Corso, who did my makeup on Freaked, was there with me every day doing mm -hmm. Bill. Um, Kevin Yeager, who did The Grandmother and Bill and Ted 2, did our prosthetics. I mean, it was oh, a wow. very, fa very familial environment, um, a very comfortable environment. That being said, I worked my butt off for about a good year 
in advance doing prep work. And I had been studying acting again, going back about 10 years ago, I started training again, purely for myself, like a musician who just wants to play piano while they mostly conduct, I guess, as a way of looking at it. I wasn't looking to like go out on the road and start hoofing, but I missed performing. So I started training and I started training about a decade ago with really good people. And I've been doing that all this time. So my chops were pretty sharp, but I, but I did have to find my way back to that character. And it wasn't falling off a lot for either of us we really we put a lot of work into it both on our own and together yeah well i can't wait to see it so um we're about to run out of time uh but thank you again so much for making the time to come on with us and uh and we uh, love your work and can't wait to see more of it oh thank you so much i really do appreciate you guys having me on it's, it's a great it's a great kind of conversation the way you guys construct it thanks very much it's great Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Alex. We, we really appreciate it. And it's been a, a huge pleasure talking to you. That was Yeah, fun. likewise. <laughs> right. Thanks, you guys. That uh, was great. All right, Alex, uh, uh, take care. All right. So that was Alex Winter. Alex, thank you. A thousand thank yous for coming on the show. And uh, I also want to say to uh, people who subscribe to us, when we do our next uh, war stories episode look for Alex's war story because it might be my favorite war story ever yeah his war story is damn good that is a really really incredible I think that might be my my favorite too it's really it's, good it's certainly in the top five ever and uh, it is exactly the kind of story I imagine people telling when we first had the idea to have people tell war stories so uh, look out for that all right, so Ben, I think we have a piece of uh, fan mail or fan tweeting or fan something. What what, what is that? Uh, what is that tweet? I don't like to think of any of these people as my as our fans. I like to think of them as our colleagues or maybe future colleagues, maybe future guests on the show. Let let's let's see how that goes. Uh, but um, yes, I got a Twitter message from at Barnes Canyon, uh, and here here it is. Hi, Ben. Just writing you to thank you. Earlier this year, right around COVID time, March, I stumbled across your and Ilya's cinematography podcast on Pandora. I love it. You guys really inspired me to pursue this passion I had despite not being anywhere close to a film school. As a result, I've invested in some starting gear and started looking for stuff to shoot. Then, of course, everything shut down. Uh, well, as things got better, a local theater group here in the Four Corners decided to shoot a movie adaptation of The Tragedy of Macbeth. I auditioned and was cast. Congrats. The exciting thing is that they need help with cinematography, so I get to help shoot. Big thanks to you for giving me the nudge to get out there and pursue my passions. So thank you at Barnes Canyon uh, for that message. Uh, it is exactly for people like you that Ilya and I decide to do this uh, every week. That was great to hear. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, okay, Ben, it is time to pay the bills. All right. So uh, we have to thank our wonderful sponsor, Aperture, who is a maker of fine LED lights uh, for the professional market. They've got a new light coming out, which will be the most powerful light they have ever made. It's not shipping just yet. And in fact, we're not even taking pre-orders over at Hot Red Cameras, but we do have sort of a interest list going. If you really, really want it early, if you want to be the first person, you need to call us and get on our interest list. This light is called the 600D. The 600D is twice as powerful as their 300D Mark II. If that, if you know, if it, you know, 600, 300, you might assume it's it's twice as powerful. Mm. But what does that actually mean? I don't know. You know, it, I don't know what yeah, that means no, at all. I'm, I'm completely at a loss. I'm going to tell you right now. All right. It's about it's a 600 watt light, 
but the light output is comparable to a 1200 watt HMI, which was the standard for a very long time for uh, motion picture lighting. Very, very powerful. 1200, you know, this is like the most powerful light that you could still plug into a household circuit. We're now halving that power and having about the same output of a daylight, very, very high quality, what they call high CRI, color rendition index, really, really high quality light that you can plug into uh, any household circuit and uh, have an output similar to what is, uh, you know, very, very standard, industry standard light for a long time and to be able to control it with... um, a wireless app control, uh, also wireless DMX built in, which means you can wirelessly control all of the the cool things like uh, the, the the dimming and that sort wow. of thing. And it is dimmable, which of course is great. And it's also IP54 weatherproof, which means you can get this thing wet and not really worry about getting shocked or injured or anything like that. Uh, and it can run off of batteries. It can also charge what? batteries. It's got yeah, it's got a very interesting multi voltage battery plate system where you can essentially either put gold Gold mount batteries or V-mount batteries, the two industry standard batteries to power your light. So imagine a 1200 watt HDMI being able to power with with uh, power it with uh, simple batteries. Also, the way that you power it when you're not using it, it charges the batteries, and uh, you know it's it can, it's weather, it's weather resistant. It's dimmable. You've got a wireless app, all this stuff, and it's going to come in about seventeen hundred dollars. And seventeen hundred dollars is nothing for a light this powerful. So that is really really impressive. So I want, I want to ask you a question. This, this is yeah. making me uh, wonder something. How, yeah. how much longer are we going to be using HMI lights at all? <sighs> I think that the answer is that they're already starting to drop off a bit. There are still some powerful uh, HMI lights out there that are, um, you know, workhorses. Uh, a very, very popular one is made by Aerie. It's called an M18. Oh, which, use it many uh, times. Love that light. It's yeah. a great light. And you can plug uh, that into a household circuit. It's not bad. You you can. It's, uh, it's right I have the limit, twice that yes, I know yeah. of. Good. Okay. So yeah, M18 powerful light. So it's yeah. it's sort of like a, a beefier version of a 1200 watt HMI. But like, how it's long in, until uh, until LED lights overtake even that kind of stuff? We're getting we're not too far away. What's like I mean, the biggest it's, it's, LED light somebody's ever made? Like, what's the brightest biggest LED light that has ever been created? Uh, Mole Richardson made one called a Tenor, which is equivalent to a 10k tungsten. So it's a really, really big, powerful LED light. There's a couple of different lights out there that are space lights uh, made by different companies uh, that uh, are about an equivalent of like a 6K. And there is now one super, super massive uh, light from a company called Fluotech. And they make, uh, they call it a 480. And God, it's it's huge. I, I, not, I'm not even sure how many LEDs it is, but I think it's probably at least 480. And the thing is about, three and a half feet wide by three and a half feet tall. And yeah, there's some, some big, you, it, it puts out a monster wall of light. So is there a ceiling though? Like can led lights only be so big? Is there, is there something that's keeping them from becoming uh, like just 18 K light bright? Uh, I, you know what? I can't actually speak to that. I don't know if there's a limit. There's an upper limit on size, but I've seen some that are probably two inches, three inches in diameter, which is pretty darn large. And if you put those together in some sort of array and you pack a lot of them in there, I don't think there's a limit. I think you can, you can just keep stacking LEDs to get as much light as you possibly might need for whatever it is that you're doing. Wow. Yeah. I I remember being in film school and having to like run, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, distro boxes and stuff like that. And, and, That's right. you know, just amazing to think that these lights, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the equivalent of a 10 K in, in, uh, in an led light is still a heavy piece of gear, but it is, but I have yeah. personally hoisted 10 K, uh, mole Richardson lights and, uh, they're, you needed some help. They're heavy, they're heavy. and they're, <laughs> you know, hot as balls. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and LED lights, uh, I'm sure would still be warmer than room temperature at that size, but still not as hot. They wouldn't, they would never put out as much heat as incandescent and they wouldn't require the same electricity. So to me, it just seems axiomatic that we should be using these for as much lighting as possible. It's really starting to happen. I think certainly as you move down the food chain too, in the lower budget productions, uh, you get so much more for your value or so much more for your money with, with led lighting and, uh, they don't burn out quite the way that, uh, traditional incandescents would burn out or would get damaged. So really, um, they're everywhere now. They're really taking over. Even just think about like the generator operator, you know, like having, having a generator to generate all that electricity and the gas that you're guzzling to basically just run all your all your lights and stuff if you could use a smaller generator or you could work off of house power at a lot of locations it's just a much more economical way to handle things and well and we'll environmental think about this too you know yeah well and, and in addition to the environmental uh, benefits also the cameras get more sensitive and they get cleaner so you combine a more sensitive cleaner camera with uh, more efficient lighting and that means you need way less lighting than you even thought you needed before. So you don't even need those really, really big lights when we're talking about the more efficient cameras, too. Awesome. And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, hey, it is our famed uh, time of the show again. Quite short ends. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, what is, uh, what's your short end this week? Okay. What's your obsession? So my obsession this week is reels. And the reason hmm. is... Uh, um, Kind of as we were talking about in our close focus earlier, I'm I'm kind of in this space uh, where I don't have anything going on, but I'm like, okay, I need to prepare for whatever the moves are going to be when you know when we're able to go back to work, you know, which will be you know between I'm casually estimating six months and five years from now, we'll all be right back to work. And uh, it's a pretty good estimate. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I have all this material that I have accumulated over the years, and I. Uh, I'm always stuck putting together my reel and I've edited my own reel for about 20 years now and I complained about it on Facebook and a friend of mine named David Haverty who's an excellent excellent editor said don't edit your own reel let me do it so he uh, (laughs) so I hired him and he's cutting my reel but it it's bringing up a lot of questions that I have because now this is not directly cinematography related but I'm sure that it would uh spill there's some spillover to cinematographers um and uh it is like okay everyone wants a reel to be short right like you know there was a time i remember watching director's reels literally on vhs you know oh, yes. in the in the early recorder in the early aughts um and they would be like 15 minutes long because they would show you know a scene from something and i always feel like as a director what do i show that i can do well i I can help cast the thing. Um, I, I am instrumental in coming up with the coverage, although not, you know, like DPs can also have a hand in that. So, you know, whatever, but what is the thing that a direct, you know, what as a director that no one can kind of steal from you is like how, how the the tone of the scene and how it all cuts together and the way it's paced and all that stuff, like sort of the whole package. And um, the reel that uh, David Haverty is cutting for me is actually 
more of a sizzle type reel. And I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around the um, what what's the balance of letting stuff play out a little bit so people can get a little bit of a flavor of it. And when I say play out, not play out for five minutes, but play out for 15, 20 seconds before you move on to the next thing versus just showing like, you know, a, uh, a mind boggling, uh, if you can't uh, dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit array of everything I've ever done. And uh, and it's and it's uh, it's a tough balance because, you know, as we've been doing it, I've been including stuff that like second unit stuff I did on Chosen for Crackle, which is a lot of action stuff. And are you are, including that to baffle them with bullshit? Totally. Baffle, <laughs> I, I just want to baffle people into hiring me. That's really that's been my entire that's it's on my business card. Actually, it's at the top of my resume is allow me. to. I, I'd never heard that said before. You've never but, heard that. But I quite enjoy it. I'm, go, I'm going to use baffle baffle them with bullshit now. Yeah, from, yeah. No, from now it's, on, it's, a, so. it's a saying that. I've heard a long time ago. If you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. Um, totally, totally what I'm what I'm going for. But um, but but in all seriousness, I feel like it's an interesting thing um, because you look at directors' reels, and to a degree, if you look at, I mean, like a big director like Guillermo del Toro does not need a reel, like mm. just doesn't need a reel. You just say his name, and everyone knows who the hell you're talking about. And you can just say, go watch Shape of Water exactly. or, or anything. Hey, me, there you go. Would you like to you, hold my Oscar? Well, do. you can't. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, for most of us uh, non-Oscar winning uh, wannabe geniuses like myself, um, you know, we, we have to do stuff to kind of get people's attention. And what I settled on, and I would love to hear the audience's uh, response to this, so feel free to hit me on Twitter at Neptune Salad about what you think of uh, a reel should be. But what we're kind of working towards is a two minute sizzle of stuff that I've done that'll live on IMDb, but also will live on my website. And then also on my website, I can have longer stuff so that if you're interested in what I did, you can look at the longer stuff and, and hopefully digest that. Um, it, it's been a process kind of getting to that because every reel I've cut for myself over the last, you know, probably 15 years, uh, I would, I would say, okay, well, let me get like the three or four things that most typify what, I feel like I was able to put my stamp on and are the kind of work I want to do in the future. Like I've worked on reality shows, don't like doing reality. I'm not putting that on there, but um, you know, but w with this, it's like, okay, well let me, let me find the thing that like really typifies me. And you know, part of it is that I do horror and thriller and comedy and, and the horror I do tends to be funny. So it's like trying to find like, it's a specific tone and I feel like it's probably not for everybody, but for who it's for, it'll be like, you know, uh, you know, it'll be like, oh, this is the guy, which is, I think, what you want, because you can't be everything to anyone, uh, to everyone. Excuse me. Let me say that again, because you can't be everything to everyone. Um, and, you know, we were talking about that specialization, that, that that's your specialization. That's that's your niche. That's what people want from you. But, you know, uh, if they knew you a little bit better or knew that, like, when you're not necessarily uh, dazzling them with your brilliance in horror comedy, you're also a damn fine editor and you make a you make a good living doing some editing for other people as well. Uh, so, I mean, it's like you, you've got a you, I, you've got a I multiple ways to keep I, the lights. I do on. have a separate editing reel and I feel like that's, you know, I, I can make a, a dazzle them uh, with uh, I can uh, baffle them with bullshit. Excuse me. I can baffle them with bullshit with my editing reel all day long because, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I've got some skills at baffling some baffling some, editing some, jobs. some bullshit wise baffling skills uh <laughs> with with my editing reel but um but no but i mean to me that absolutely has to be separate even though like a lot of the stuff i directed i also edited you know some of it i did not edit 
um, and and you know, kind of don't don't mix. Uh, don't, don't. You're, you were going to say don't shit where you eat. I was going to say don't mix the milk with the meat, but that's a very Jewish <laughs> reference. So uh, anyway, well, you know, so, so I, I think there's there's one or two people who listen to the show who would have got it. One or two. <laughs> so <laughs> so anyway, reels. That's been kind of I've been in real town. Um, and uh, once I've got this reel, I'll probably be doing an update on my website, BenRockOnline.com. Um, just but will you have an editor? edit your editing reel for you no I, I i can edit my own editing reel I'm, I'm okay with that you know the thing is that like i'm not as personally invested in the editing stuff which maybe sure. makes me better at it it's not that i'm no, not that pre- makes you a better editor for yeah, sure it, when i'm i mean i'm not saying i'm not personally invested in the projects that i edit but i but i'm not personally invested in in making a living as an editor so i can i don't have as much of an ego about it and i can like look at a thing and be like oh yeah that's cool editing and throw it in uh you know whatever but as directing like they're all my children and i don't want to uh <laughs> i don't i don't want to forget any, no I, sophie's I, choice I don't leave you yet. can't uh, you yeah. can't murder them and so it, it's actually really hard for me like once we started going down this path like oh yeah that I, you know like there was there was an instant film that we did that walt lloyd actually shot uh, that you helped yeah. us out with the camera on, um, and it's called "Shut Up." I said, "Shut up," and I'd given it to the editor, and and, uh, and David th- threw a scene in there, and it stars Jeffrey Vincent Paris, who's like a really um, a, a well-known character actor. He's in a lot of stuff. He was in Mad Men. He was in the last episode of Mad Men. Um, you know, he 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 was in The Love Witch. He's in tons of cool stuff, and also uh, Henry Dittman uh, and, and also Ryan. "Shut Up." I said, "Shut up." So you know, it's like, yeah. and it's. I mean, I'm really proud of it, but it was a 48 hour film project, but it was also a 48 hour film project shot by Walt Lloyd. So it looks fucking phenomenal. And um, did it make the reel, though? That's uh, the real question. It still has yet to be seen. You know, like uh, it's it's in there right now. I'll I'll show it to you when we're done. Nice. That's that's fantastic. Well, um, so Ilya, uh, we've run our yaps about my reel long enough. Uh, What is your uh, short end this week? Uh, it's really on the nose. My uh, short end this week is a new camera. Uh, Canon has come out with a new camera. Oh, wow. They've announced a new camera. It ships uh, in a couple of weeks. Probably the it'll ship maybe a week after this uh, this podcast goes live. So that people weeks, can make weeks, films about like nothing with it because no one's filming anything. Go on. There's a, there's a few of them in the country that are out there. And uh, the camera is not without a little bit of controversy. And I think that's actually good really? for any sort of new launch. But uh, I will tell you what makes the new Canon R5 so interesting is that uh, it uses artificial intelligence for its autofocus. And yes, and it has what appears to be, if you follow the uh, if you follow the the claims of Canon, the most advanced, most uh, accurate, ultra high speed autofocus uh, ever invented. So essentially you can have a dog running towards you on, uh, you know, at high rates of speed and you could be wide open on a long lens and be able to perfectly capture the dog because not only does it recognize human faces, it recognizes dog faces. Mm. It also supposedly has some sort of technology that like if your human actor puts on a helmet, it knows that and it still stays focused on the person, even though their face is now obstructed. Um, Now I was reading about it and I think people should know it. It recognizes dogs cats ferrets and weirdly pangolins i don't know why pangolins what's a pangolin it's like a it's like an anteater <laughs> so you're making this up but, you're, but you're like, effing with me but yeah but it, it like it won't under it, it it definitely can't tell uh hamster faces so uh don't, well, don't. I, I don't I don't know about that but it it will it, it's got a very interesting like hierarchy like mm-hmm. um 
if it can see a head, it'll focus on a head. But if it sees an eye, then it immediately will go to the eye. Really? So it's like, yeah, it's it's uh, it's very it's very very interesting. So I It'll think be that there's interesting some to see will... what it can do to a giant squid because that has the largest eye in the animal kingdom. Well, uh, the the demo footage that they've shown for this autofocus is incredible, and I expect that there are some people who are not typically you know mirrorless camera type of folk who decide to take advantage of this because. Getting autofocus with professional still, uh, sorry, professional cinema cameras is very, very complicated and very expensive and is only really reserved for uh, very unique cases. But I have a feeling that someone might pull this out because the camera also offers 8K raw video. Whoa. Which, yeah, which is just kind of insane considering. What, what size sensor, by the way? It's a full frame 35 sensor. So it's a very large sensor. Full frame, shoots, like, so uh, it's like the 5D or something. Yes, it's the same size sensor. Whoa, and okay. So, okay, so 8K raw, and then it also will do 120 frames per second in 4K raw as well, or Holy 4K crap. log, something like that. So, yeah, it's like it's got a high frame rate 4K, and then it's got uh, an 8K, and it can record that 8K internally, too. So... Yeah, so it's like on paper and specs, it's very, uh, it's it's very very powerful, much more powerful than the other cameras that people are currently using uh, for all kinds of stuff, at least uh, based on the claims. However, here's the where the the, the controversy comes from. Uh, Canon released a disclaimer saying that they can only achieve some of these very very high uh, high frame rates and large file size, high resolution images. For limited periods of time without the camera overheating. Mm. So I don't believe this will be that big of a deal, especially for most people out there who probably are not going to be running uninterrupted 8K video for trying to do it for long periods of time. There's not going to be people out there hopefully trying to shoot their weddings all entirely in, in 8K and just let, letting the thing roll. I don't Wait, see so, that. So 8K, like if you were going to make a short film in 8K or something like that, I mean, that is it's psychotic overkill to want to make anything in 8k. It's just, you know? Yeah. Uh, but just because it exists, people are now going to try to do it. But, but here's the thing. I think that they're probably overstating it a little bit because, um, they want to protect themselves and they know that there's a limitation. And I will tell you that Canon is, is a relatively conservative, uh, you know, large Japanese company and they don't want to have the perception of people out there, certainly on the consumer side that here they're putting this professional feature, but then, uh, a consumer tries to use it how it was not intended and then it doesn't work and they go, wow, I bought this camera that doesn't work. So they very, very upfront was like, look, here's this, here's this thing. You know, they're not making a huge deal about it, but it's like, look, if you try to do this wrong, it ain't going to work. Uh, Here, other companies, there's a big opportunity for you in this. I don't know if you've thought about this already, but hot oh, rod yeah, cameras should be making refrigerator blimps for this camera already. That, that that's not a not a bad idea but we, we actually did this back with the original uh canon 70 and 5d there were issues with those cameras overheating too and they had um circuitry protection that was built in like oh the camera's too hot it's shutting down and you could still record for very long periods of time but if you try to do it in a really hot climate if you try to do it outside in the middle of summer you might get the warning from your camera and your camera would shut down we did modifications to the cameras that include uh, that included increasing airflow and actually on one camera forced air through like with a fan so that it would keep it cool. And sure enough, if you did these things, uh, even on hot days, the cameras generally would not overheat. That's, that's so a very is an smart and sober attempt to my to make my ridiculous uh, refrigerator blimp idea uh, into a practical thing. I, I have to say this. I've had a 5D Mark II since like 
2011. And I have mm. shot God knows how many things with it inside, outside, in the summer. I, sh- I shot a thing on a golf course for three days in Las Vegas in the summer a few years ago. Nice. And I have never once had it overheat. It's never overheated you know, on me. This is why I say I think Canon is very conservative. I think Canon is saying like, hey, they're putting the statement out there. But but typically consumers too, um, they, they, don't have a, they don't have a need for 8K. I mean, 8K is really kind of reserved for people with plenty of data storage who have no, uh, no very powerful computers that are able to, to work with that footage. If you don't have the kind of all that other stuff too, that, that 8K may, may mean nothing for you. Here's the good news though, because it's a brand new sensor and brand new image processor inside the Canon R5, uh, even if you don't need 8K, you're still taking full advantage of the sensor and the processor. And it, even the HD stuff is gonna look very similar to the 4K to the 8K, and uh, same with the different sort of compression systems, including the different flavors of RAW and of log that are inside of it. So um, even if you're not shooting in the highest resolution, you still get to use all the good horsepower, all the good stuff that goes into it. Sure, if sure. You are, it, yeah, I was, I'm just gonna throw it out there too, because we have a pre-order going at Hot Rod. If you think that you might want an R5, of course, hit us up at, at Hot Rod. It, you know, you help support the podcast. And also you'll be one of the first people to get it because uh, we have a very short pre-order list for this because usually we sell cinema cameras cameras but of course uh, we also sell the very fine high-end uh, mirrorless and dslr style cameras and uh, this one is going to be a biggie for a while because uh, there isn't any other sort of cameras that have been announced yet that has anywhere near these sort of specs so canon might uh, be the king of the jungle for a little while what about that panasonic full frame uh, deal that did that does raw it's ama- it, it does raw externally, and it is amazing. It is a fantastic camera. It does a 6K. It does a 6K internal. It uh, has an incredible V-Log. It, it, it's really an amazing camera. It costs very similar to the R5. And uh, I think the proof will be in the pudding. We'll get to see uh, what happens. And I don't know who uh, who will have better low-light performance because I have a feeling that, that these cameras are all just going to be monsters now coming out. Sony has a hotly anticipated camera that would be coming out at some point, but they really haven't said. So really, all the cameras are getting much more light-sensitive. All of them are having way better rolling shutter performance. All of them are having better dynamic range, and now all of them are having even better resolution. So again, it's kind of like, uh, it's the same sort of wars that we had back in 2009, 2010, when the the first sort of HDSLR started coming out. Uh, it's not going to be boring. And for about $4,000 right now, someone can pick up a really, really fine camera from one of these companies. That's great to hear. Um, well, uh, I can't wait to see it. And, uh, you know, hopefully if we all wait out the pandemic, you know, maybe the prices will, uh, will, will drop or, uh, there will be a next generation of these things, depending on how much longer we have to sit here. Well, I should also probably mention though, that Canon also is coming out with the R6 at the same time, which doesn't have those sort of like top, top end features and is a lot less money. So for people who just know out, out the gate, I don't need that. You can get an R6 and it can save some cash. I think, uh, not, not to belabor this, but I, I think that the, uh, the AI driven autofocus uh, yeah, thing, deal. Uh, especially yeah. for documentary filmmakers like that, oh, yeah. that's going to be humongous in the, in the field when you have to one man band your stuff all the time. If you don't have to be that worried about focus. Uh, I think that for me, it would be, it would take me a couple of days to just get used to trusting it. <laughs> but, and I'm not going to say that it's perfect. I haven't tested it yet, but uh, the demonstration and the testimonials from sort of the uh, influencer type people who they've given cameras to and who have been speaking about it all have been like, you know, blown away. They're hey man, we're influencers. They should give us some cameras. Anyway. 
<laughs> it's all good. Uh, well, I don't know that we. I don't. I don't want to be an influencer that makes me sound like I. Uh, you know I, what? I, t- I take Disney toys out of boxes on Instagram. Uh, you know that that I think that it's kind of like you know the dark side of the force too. Once you go down that path, it's like that's yeah, yeah. It's like you don't you don't. Yeah, want that's that. a long walk just to get a camera. But yeah. uh, but uh, <laughs> you're far better off not not doing. That, I'm just like say. way overdue for an upgrade on my camera, and uh, usually I wait for there's like I wait till there's an actual job that I need it for before I upgrade mm-hmm. anything, and uh, you know all all of my jobs lately are audio. <laughs> So well, with a very simple adapter, your lenses that you use on your 5D will carry over to these other ones. Oh, so sweet. You'll be good. So it's a mirrorless camera, but re- really inexpensive adapter, and you can keep using your lenses. Excellent. Well, that's, that's to me, the linchpin. All right, Elias, so uh, that about wraps us up. Uh, who do we need to thank? Let's thank uh, Alana Cody, our uh, Furiosa of uh, Producers. Yeah, I think she might be editing this episode, if I'm not mistaken. She probably is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's like a, a multitasking generalist. The that's that's exactly right. She's yeah. she's dusting off some other skills, diversifying her skill set, doing yeah. some editing. Yeah, she's got she's got Adobe Audition on her resume now. Um, that's right. And uh, Ben Katz, who also is uh, is uh, he might be editing this episode. If not, he is our frequent editor. Uh, he edits most of our episodes, and he's coming back to L.A., so uh, when we're allowed to see people again, we can uh, go hang out with him. Sounds good. Let's also thank uh, Kay Zalatracci, who's not listening. He might be listening. I bet he's a fan of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and maybe oh. even a fan of some other Alex Winter-related uh, Winterati. What, I don't know what you would say, how you would He's, he's a member of the Winterati, yeah, the, the hardcore <laughs> fans of Alex Winter. <laughs> <laughs> He's an ac- an acolyte of uh, Bill S. Preston Esquire. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, cool, man. Uh, we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.